Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Dr. Martin Luther King's phrase, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, is often spoken of with a sense of solace in America. We tell ourselves that progress is being made and patience is necessary. Conversations surrounding racial inequity and injustice are perhaps more prevalent now than since the peak of the civil rights movement, but the realities of racial discrimination are still entrenched. People of color are striving to make change and make themselves heard. What can white allies do to help bend the arc further, faster? That's the subject of the talks at this Pachakacha Night Seattle event. What's a Pachakacha? The term has been translated as the sound of conversation. The gathering started in Japan in 2003. The basic format requires speakers to present 20 slides in 20-second intervals. The idea is to keep presentations fast-paced and concise, i.e. not your average boring PowerPoint presentation. This Pachakacha Night Seattle event, Interrupting Whiteness, took place at the Seattle Public Library on June 1st. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Artist Roger Fernandez of the Lower Elwha Sklalem tribe gave the opening presentation. Thank you, good people, for inviting me to this event. Um, I'm very happy to be here tonight. The topic you're going to be discussing tonight, hear about tonight, consider tonight, is very important. And you are here to try to change something. You're try here to try to change the condition that exists now where racism we imagined was gone, but it's still here. And Native people have always looked at this as a very interesting interpretation of how people are to be measured by the color of their skin. But when I do work with people, I ask them a question. And I will ask you the same question. Complete the following statement. The only good Indian, you can say it, is the dead Indian. And the question becomes, I know none of you believe that. But somewhere deep inside you, that story was planted. I believe it's part of the American psyche. And so the worker here today is not going to be just purely intellectual work, talking about laws and policy and history. It's going to be spiritual work that will allow our spirits to combine with each other, the voices to come together by our spirits. So I'm going to sing to you what's called a changer song. It's a song that acknowledges a being who came to the world and prepared it for human beings. There was a time when there were no humans in the world, but they were to come. They were foretold. And someone came to the world and got the world ready for them. He has many names. One is Duhobach, one is Stokwal, for whom the Snoqualmie people are named. Another one is uh, Labatea. Another one is Hal. Many, many names. But he's called the changer by the native people because he changed the world and got the world ready for us. So I'm going to sing you this song because you, by being here, are changers. You want to change the world, so in future generations, that shadow of racism will be disappearing. It will diminish. Our children and great-grandchildren and children after them will look at it as history because they'll find a way to live to, in the world in a better way because we have created that work. So this is called The Changer Song, written by my teacher, Bruce Miller. <clears throat> Oh, you wake, 
again, that song was sung to honor the work that you're doing. That song comes from my heart to your heart. That song is meant to begin the conversation, not here, because Western culture prefers to work up here, and I understand that. I was raised in this culture. But the native people say we must start here. We must start with our heart and speak to each other from our heart, and then our brain, our words will come in to help us do that work. So I don't mean to lecture you in this way that I know better than you. I don't. The struggle that we're in to confront racism has gone on for hundreds of years. But how do we end that? And in my knowledge, experience, what I was taught is that the people who created it must deal with it. The people of color, we've suffered under it. And we have a vested interest in seeing it end. But the people who must do the work are the ones who created it. And I know you did not sit down and create this thing, but the culture you live within, they created it. The idea of race being a measure of people and their worth. And so I'm going to ask that the people of color respect this idea that the white people must they must address this thing. They must look towards how do we end this thing. One measure I have is who are the great anti-race civil rights leaders among the white people? And usually we can't think of anyone. We might find someone that maybe a few people know, but who is the person that they look to for leadership? What man or woman do they say, this is the one who speaks for us? But again, that's my opinion, and that's why I'm up here. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I do want to share very quickly a story that the Snoqualmie people tell. I hope this story will give us a, a, a crack in the door that we might open that door and have more open conversations, more honest conversations. Storytelling is meant to help us in our heart make sense of things. Because oftentimes when you hear an old story, our brain says, well, that could never happen. These things, a, a, a raven cannot turn into a, a, a tree leaf. And so, but the stories were not told to speak to us here. They were to speak to us here. So I'm going to tell you a very quick story from the Stokelbuke people, the Snoqualmie people. A long time ago, the world was very different than it is today. Can all of you show me where is the sky? Where is the sky? I knew this was a good audience. Very good. All right. Yes. And how high is the sky? Well, it, always, it wasn't always up there. In this story, it was dark and heavy, and it was way down here. This is where the sky was right here. And because of that, the people had to walk around like this all the time. They walked around all bent over because the sky was so low upon them. And they, they couldn't stand up. They would bump their heads, and so they walked bent over all the time. And because of this, they kept bumping their heads. Their backs began to hurt, and they could not see where they were going. They could only see their feet beneath them. And so this dark and heavy sky weighed heavily upon the people. The people decided they needed an answer to this problem of the sky being right here, and they went to an old man in the village. Native people recognized we go to our elders because they're not just smart, they're also wise. They've lived a long time. They know how to solve these big problems. So they went to this elder, and he said, I will think about it. I will think about it. And they came back in a couple days, and he said, we will push up the sky, invite all the tribes here to come to our place, and we will push up the sky together. And so everyone, all the tribes around here were invited to the Snoqualmie village up in the mountains. The plan was explained, how we're going to push up the sky. And everyone agreed it was a good idea. But someone way in the back called out, but there's a big problem here. We all speak different languages here. And it's true, we do. All the tribes here speak different languages. So we all have a different word for push. How can we work together? How can we push together? We all speak different languages. The elder again thought for several days and said, you shall use the word yahout. 
Yahaw will mean work together. Yahaw will mean push together. When I say Yahaw, we all say Yahaw and push up on that heavy sky. And so I want you all to participate. It's called audience participation. It's relatively painless, all right? Put your hands right here. And when I say Yahaw, I want you all to say Yahaw and push up on that heavy sky. We're going to push it out of our way. So here we go. Yahaw. Yahoo! Yahoo! Is that high enough? No, it's not. Let's get some big long poles and keep pushing it up with those poles using the same words. Here we go. Yahoo! 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 We did it. We pushed the sky up to where it is today. The Snoqualmie people say if we work together, we can do great things. We can even push up the sky. I tell that story oftentimes when people ask me, how can we get to work together? I'm going to do something as a storyteller I'm not supposed to do, which is give you some interpretations of some of the teachings within the story. Native people call these stories the teachings. And so within this story are teachings, a philosophy of values, of morals, of beliefs. Within them are very, very deeply planted in the story. If you know the story in your heart, then you will understand some of these things. Someone in one of the story groups telling in a group like this, Someone raised their hand and said, that word Yahaw was crucial in his estimation. That we were all different people, different ages, different generations, different genders, different class, different everything. We must find one thing that unites us. That this is the one thing we recognize we will all work towards. Because everything else might be different, but we agree to accomplish this task, the impossible, we must agree on one principle that we all will carry with us. And no matter what our difference is, we always come back to that one thing. It will allow us to work together. Because saying we will work together is relatively easy. To actually work together is hard work. So again, I want to say that as Native people, we look at this and say, how can we help in this endeavor? We tell our stories. We try to remind you of our connection to the earth, your connection to the earth. We try to remind you of all these things. And in sharing this story, I'm hoping I give you a sense of that idea of a word that doesn't seem to carry much weight anymore in this culture. It's called wisdom. Wisdom. And that might be part of this conversation. What is the wisdom that we need to bring to this effort to deal with racism as it continues to exist in America today? So again, I sang that song for you to, in the beginning. That song was a prayer as much as a way of honoring you. We are on the, on the land of the Duh'apsh people, the Duwamish people. And you know their history. You know that before and after the treaties, they were forcibly moved from Seattle by gunpoint. Their villages were burned. They were sent to places like Muckleshoot, where many of them are now, Tulalip, Suquamish Reservation. But their spirit is still here in this land. Si'at, Si'at, who we call Seattle, for whom the city is named after, he prophesied our people would never leave. We would always be here. So because we're still here, we want to be a voice in all of this work that's being done. So this gesture among our people, this gesture, you see our people doing this all the time, means thank you. It means hello, you're welcome, goodbye. We do it all the time. We call it putting our hands to people. I put up my hands to you all here today. You could be doing something else, something important in your life, but you determined that this work is so important, you must be here tonight. You're sacrificing your time to be here. You're sacrificing your, 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 you're sacrificing to be here tonight. I understand that so many ways. So I put my hands up to you all and say, if there's a way I can help you with this work, I will be here. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Good evening. My name is Patricia Lawley, and I'm the director at the Seattle Office for Civil Rights. And seeing all of you here tonight gives me hope. And it's something that we are greatly in need of. I'm glad that you're here willing to have a conversation about interrupting whiteness. One of the city's overarching vision for the race and social justice initiative is that we dismantle institutional and structural racism and achieve racial equity. And to do that, we bring people together, people of all races, because we cannot do this work alone. And I'm excited to know that the Seattle Public Library is deepening its efforts to bring community together to have meaningful conversations about racism in America, and particularly in Seattle. Tonight's conversation is a bit controversial because it flips the script and it asks white people to weigh in on racism. And it asks white people to make clear their anti-racist commitment. Now I'm sure that when the organizers prepared for this event, that they never imagined the horrible loss of life that occurred just a few days ago in Portland. That juxtaposition of hope and despair makes this conversation all the more critical. The reality is we cannot live without it. Please join me in a moment of silence for Richard Collins and Ricky John Best and Taylorshin Meriden Namkai Metch of Portland. We mourn them and all who have died because of our culture of racial hatred. After the killings in Portland, my Portland counterpart wrote an editorial, and he said this, the reality is, is that people of color experience racism and harassment every day in Portland. We fear for our children and ourselves because the current political and social climate has emboldened bigots and white supremacists to be more comfortable, more public, and aggressive with their hate. We are frustrated and disgusted when folks are surprised that such overt racism and hatred could exist in progressive Portland, Oregon. I hope you are here tonight because you want to prevent such atrocities from happening in progressive Seattle. But I'm hoping for more than that. I'm hoping that you will do your part in changing the reality of the school-to-prison pipeline, of over-incarceration, of gentrification and displacement, environmental racism, and lack of opportunity for our black and brown community members from cradle to grave. Equity and inclusion help us to create communities of belonging. It provides for a future that is beautifully united. In our race and social justice trainings in the city, there is and we never expect closure. And please don't expect closure tonight. 
It has taken over 500 years of building white supremacy to have the American institution that it is today. And this two and a half hours together, in contrast, is an imperfect and short beginning. Let's be honest, failure is an option. It's a possibility. A white-led conversation about undoing racism is a fraught endeavor, but one that also has the possibility to galvanize the forces of love, to heal, and to have a deeper understanding of one another. And that is to say that, our white, that when our white brothers and sisters this evening take the mic, they do so already aware that they cannot supplant or replace the voices of people of color, nor can they ever know, or ex nor can they ever know our experience of racism. Instead, their job is to do something beautiful and modest, to begin the necessary work of accountability, to have the humility and honor to try and fail, and to try again as white allies, just as people of color day after day deal with and endure the discomfort and hurt of racism. I thank all of you in advance for holding a space of love, a space of caring, of beginning to imagine what it would look like to create a community of belonging where we are all within the circle of human concern. I can assure you that at the Office for Civil Rights, we look forward to and we are eager to work with you to make a difference in our great city. Thank you. How's everybody feeling? You all are a beautiful crowd. Give yourselves a round of applause. My name is Davida Ingram, and I'm the Public Engagement Programs Manager at the library, and I'm delighted. I want to bring them in closer to um, share the stage with Caroline and Anna. We are also short for time, so we're going to try and pick up some time with our remarks and get ready for our next speaker. So you want to take it away, Anna? I will do it. Um, <clears throat> Thank you all for being here. It's really, um, really incredible to see everybody coming together here today. Um, when I founded Pachacacha 11 years ago, this was the dream that in coming together to celebrate that we would have the capacity to deepen our commitment to each other and have conversations like this one in which we're vulnerable and exposed and ready to grow. And I can see that this is a community that is in fact so primed for this work. Um, as we prepared for, the, for tonight, we've been listening to feedback. Um, people of color and white people share their concerns about if it would work to have white folks engage their communities around racism. Others have said, finally, it's time. We're here to hold our plural perspectives because libraries, public libraries, and Pachacacha are democratic spaces. Pachacacha is a format that allows for perspective taking. Speakers have 20 slides and 20 seconds a slide, no matter who you are. 
We have 11 different Pachakucha speakers tonight and Micho remarks by social media genius and such a luminary, Ijiomo Ulo and poet Carlin Newhouse, a recent, I know, let's give it up for both of them. Carlin Newhouse is a recent finalist for a Youth Poet Laureate. Thank you. Also, can we have a round of applause for Roger and for Patty? Yeah. I couldn't have thought of a better way. I couldn't have thought of a better way to start the night. And I also just wanted to give some context that I have been proud to be able to work with Anna on a number of different Pachakachas that look at racial violence. The first time I got a chance to work with her was directly after the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. We came together again at Mount Zion to talk about the killings of unarmed black people, and most recently at the library as we've been doing programming about our changing political climate in America, we did American Visionaries that looked a program that looked at anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia, and particularly the ways that Latinx, Muslim, and other immigrant communities of color are being affected. This is our first time that we are doing community engagement directly with white people to have conversations with their own community members around challenging anti-racism. We invite folks to do perspective taking around power and privilege in this room today. And when you go home to your loved ones, because anti-racist work is everyone's work. We're also beginning this conversation realistically. Without a guarantee, it will succeed. Patty's right that failure, failure is an option, and that beginnings can be human, imperfect, and helpful in their own right. Seattle is over 70% white, and we believe that in order for our city to be equitable and inclusive, white people have to be active in the fight to challenge white supremacy by working in concert with communities of color. That was quite a lead up. You still there? All right. Um, I like participatory clouds. Um, our next speaker is Jed Muir, a lecturer in American and Ethnic Studies and Cultural Studies at the University of Washington Bothell. Jed teaches, writes, and partners with students, artists, scholars, and organizers to engage race and racism, intersectionality, cultural movements, and social change. His current project focuses on black radical art and politics in the Pacific Northwest. Please welcome Jed Muir. Hello. Okay, this is seven frames. When Davida, by way of Aretha, asks you to participate, you tell her that two of the things that make you most uncomfortable are white people applauding themselves for anti-racist work and any time a white person speaks at a Q&A. You, you Google interrupting whiteness and two of the first four results are racist screeds against public school teachers getting together to address the way that white supremacist ideology shapes, shapes educational environments and policies, an act which these commentators deem shockingly racist. Two. Whiteness begins through a consensual and solidarist sense of a besieged people. 
establishing its identity through its own generalization and oppression of those it sees as a threat. Or, as black studies scholar and poet Fred Moten puts it, settlers always think they're defending themselves. That's why they build forts on other people's land, and then they freak out over the fact that they're surrounded. In this sense, there is no such thing as a neutral white identity, since whiteness is weaponized against perceived threats, internal and external, a fact which goes some way toward explaining the marriage of whiteness, nationalism, property, and propriety throughout the history of the settler colony of the United States. Three, it is an ironic effect of so much collective insurgency against white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, colonialism, and what the great Cedric Robinson called racial capitalism, that for so many white people, anti-racism means confessing one's privilege. Though such insurgencies from Marinage to Black Lives Matter have never been about individual subjects or an individualist notion of liberation, as so many feminists of color have pointed out, white people in schools, activist spaces, nonprofits, etc., tend to perform or deny our privilege as individuals. This points to a deeper problem. Privileged discourse often assumes that white people have something that other people should want. Bell Hooks' mom understood this problem when she told her daughter she could take what white people have to offer, but she didn't have to love them. And Hooks knew that what her mother meant was she, wouldn't adopt, she shouldn't adopt their ways and institutions and practices at the expense of the ways of knowing and being Hooks carried with her, the rich, radical forms of knowledge and collective social life produced at the margins. Four, less than a week before the event, you get in a car accident. The damage is bad, the airbag hurts, but you're fine. The white police officer, AKA the police officer, on scene asks you no questions. And not supposed to let you drive home with a deployed airbag, he hands you his four inch knife, knife to cut it off yourself. Don't cut me with my own knife, he jokes. <clears throat> Five. The individuating violence of whiteness, including the commitment to the idea that you can own yourself and therefore grasp and know and own the world, might be thought of as an imposition against seeing other ways of being in the world, ways of being most often embodied and lived by whiteness's hated others, the poor, the black, the immigrant, the indigenous, the unsettled. To the extent to which we invest in a vast web of social relations and imaginaries that produce life chances for some and premature death for others, we fail to engage in the collective work Adrian Rich referred to as recognizing whiteness as a point of location for which we must take responsibility. This is what one scholar has called the possessive investment in whiteness. Toni Morrison, one of the keenest theorists of this possessive investment, captures in one paragraph how it destroys possibilities for solidarity, sociality, and collective being, when she describes how Irish immigrants attempt to enter whiteness by participating in gendered anti-black racism. Six, in Citizen, an American lyric, Claudia Rankin chooses to remove the person who was lynched from a lynching photograph she secured from state archives. Rather than continuing to spectacularize black pain and death, she directs us to the people who believe themselves to be white in the foreground of the image. People who circulate their acts across a vast white network through newspapers, letters, postcards, holiday greetings, and even audio recordings featured publicly in sites like Seattle's Pike Place Market. While your students recognize that Citizen is about microaggressions, anti-black violence, and liberal racism, 
They also point to all the other things that happen amidst and underneath this violence. Like the moment on the subway when a white man runs over a little boy of color and doesn't see him, has never seen him, and doesn't stop to attempt reparation. The mother of the boy says, the beautiful thing is that a group of men began to stand behind me like newly found uncles and brothers. Seven, <clears throat> in this period of racial capitalism, your job involves spending most days figuring out how to get together and move and think with students who are told, directly and indirectly, that they must reproduce the university by producing themselves as certain kinds of people with certain kinds of stories. Stories that might get them labeled excellent and employable and get their pictures on the diversity website or on the side of a city bus. But they keep fucking up, flipping the script, messing with, with racialized gender norms, finding new stories to tell and not tell, asking too many questions, demanding and refusing, insisting we talk more about words like hegemony and intersectionality and liberation, thinking a little too critically about basketball and Bollywood, embodying something other than the best docile, flexible subjects of neoliberalism, finding ways to strategize, to live and be together otherwise, as a Sean Crowley might say, to twist their heads up together. The rich, radical, ongoing histories and resources that animate their ground, and this one, encourage us to twist up our heads together and strategize and militate toward dismantling whiteness and its inseparable relationship to racial capitalism. From small acts of insurgency, like walking so slowly at the back of a Black Lives Matter march for hours, continually causing a bike gang of police officers to fall over, to large collective projects of non-reformist reform, as abolitionists like Ruth Wilson, Wilson Gilmore and Avery Gordon call it, aimed at remaking the arrangements of power, property, and propriety that produce life chances for some and premature death for everyone else and for the earth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jed. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to say thank you to Jed one more time. Thank you so much, Jed. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Ashley Harrison. Ashley has worked at the Seattle Public Library for eight years before recently joining the City of Seattle Legislative Department, where she provides operational support for the legislative process. She is a lifelong Washingtonian. Let us give a warm welcome to Ashley Harrison. Hi, good evening. Want to say one thing before I start? I'm probably going to speak very quickly. I'm nervous, and there are a lot of you here. Um, it's lovely to see all your faces, and um, 20 seconds is not a lot, so please bear with me for the speed run. Seattle's majority whiteness is not happenstance. This whiteness was designed violently. This is from a list of 416 racial restrictive housing covenants in King County. Subdivisions and entire neighborhoods wrote restrictions into their deeds, specifying that homes could only be sold or rented to white people. And the restrictions weren't outlawed until the 1968 Fair Housing Act. Federally, the Chinese Exclusion Act was in effect from 1882 to 1943, prohibiting immigration by Chinese laborers who had been coming to the West Coast. 
1942, nearly 13,000 people of Japanese descent were subjected to forced internment and dispossessed of their lands and assets. I'm already a slide behind. White settlers burned down the Duwamish longhouses to push out the original inhabitants of this land, and all of this is central to our current conversations around race, access, and housing. Who was able to gain a foothold, and how did that shape our city today? So this is to frame a starting assumption that race is a social construct, but we all must reckon with the real and significant harm inflicted on the basis of race. So how can white people disrupt white cultural norms when we also share traits like perfectionism, worship of the written word, and allowing a sense of urgency to win out over other considerations? And I want to credit Kenneth Jones and Timo Kuhn. Uh, that, that list comes from an excerpt of their, um, an article excerpted from their book. So how do we push back when the structure of our very organizations mirrors white culture? So here's something that doesn't work. Early in my career and new to working in large institutions, I was concerned about a process with disproportional negative access, uh, negative impacts on people of color. And I knew the people in charge of that process and went to them individually, thinking they would take this up once I laid out the evidence. But this did not work. The one-on-one -on -one approach, the sincerity without political pressure, did nothing to inspire an examination of the issue. Moving a large institution takes more than sincerity and facts. Engaging one-on-one -on -one or in small groups is an extremely important tool. Conversation can be transformative. Talk to your friends and relatives about race and normalize these conversations between white people. But when there's a big power differential between you and the person you're appealing to, you need a larger forum. So this is what I'd look for now. Who shares this concern? Who holds relationships with impacted people so we can get feedback and be accountable? Who are the partners and co-signers? And what are the pressure points? If you want to dismantle vertical power, you have to build horizontal power. Public employees are also represented by unions at a much higher rate than the private sector. And I was active in the union here at SPL. Unions can have a positive effect on wages of diverse groups of employees, but have an uneven track record around racial equity in their internal leadership and impact. Seattle school, for example, Seattle's public school teachers demanded changes to a disciplinary structure to improve student racial equity outcomes and cited that when they went out on strike. But many police unions have chosen to support biased, violent officers by contesting discipline rather than support accountability to the communities they serve. Sometimes even problematic structures offer tools for addressing a specific inequity or opportunities to be a buffer. So as a union steward, I worked cases on behalf of individuals. And when I represented employees of color, we sometimes decided together that I would go alone into the formal meetings so the employee could spend their time and energy where they wanted, rather than retelling emotionally draining stories to white decision makers uh, who were focused on what's documented and easily quantifiable. But in that same union context, we did not look at racial equity in our leadership or engage specifically with staff of color to represent their interests. And if you only serve the people who engage you, you will chronically underserve many communities. When I first heard this prompt, all I could think of were questions, and some I routinely ask myself, others I've struggled to engage with. One I see as vital to revisit on an ongoing basis is who are your influences, artistically, politically, literarily, and musically? In whatever media you most consume or create, think about what you take in and then think about whether most of those creators and producers and people depicted are white. A second question there, are you ever not the intended audience? If you don't seek works where you aren't a primary consideration, everything is being softened for you. This doesn't mean that you have access to every space, that's a harmful notion. 
but you can learn from books, articles, and interviews without asking people of color to take more of their time to educate you. When I think about what holds me back from deeper engagement, one thing stands out. After final presentations in a college class, my professor George remarked that our mostly white cohort struggled with allowing others even a glimpse into our internal worlds. This comment has stuck with me ever since. And I think that this is white fragility of only letting out the parts of ourselves that match up to these unspoken expectations of whiteness. And this is what white people gain by working to dismantle structural racism because you cannot engage on someone else's behalf. That's disingenuous and ineffective. But by redistributing power and resources, by amplifying voices telling truths outside of and beyond our conventional wisdom, we will have the opportunity to become someone other than the selves prescribed and constrained by whiteness. When it comes to processing whiteness, my instinct is to stew on this until I can present something fully formed. This isn't something I've adopted consciously, but it takes away accountability and knowledge sharing and deprives me of opportunities to fail and do better. It stops me from contributing because the way that I see it, I don't have anything to contribute yet, but you can't be stuck in that state in perpetuity. An earlier slide, because I'm behind, uh, is Athena, Greek goddess of wisdom bursting fully formed from Zeus's head. And I just wanted to say, most things don't burst fully formed from your head, especially not wisdom. <laughs> so I think that this instinct comes from a weird sense that the work is somehow always out of reach. Um, this notion that it's always an external amorphous thing that I can't quite get to, instead of just seeking better practices for being in the world in more open and less harmful ways. So white people have to talk to other folks about racism so it becomes an embedded practice for us to consider questions of equity, representation, and access throughout our lives. This is a conversation that relies on some shared vocabulary. It may seem strange to seek out other white people as anti-racist resources, but whose job is it to interrupt whiteness? It's ours. I'm aware of two local groups of white people organizing each other and taking leadership from people of color. One is the Coalition of Anti-Racist Whites, and the second is European descent. And these groups embed accountability into their structure, so it's not just white people talking to each other about social, social justice to distance ourselves from, quote, those other white people. Um, I think coming into anti-racist work, white people misunderstand what's expected of us and make it out to be bigger, but we don't have the solutions. If you mystify the work as something other than daily practice, it will remain difficult to engage with, so find something concrete and practical to do. It doesn't have to be glamorous. It's probably better if it's behind the scenes helping to amplify voices or shine a light. So what's expected? Learn history, show up, take leadership from people of color, and be prepared to risk your comfort, your reputation, and your physical safety. We're seeing an outright legislative and often physical assault on communities of color, immigrants, and poor folks. So always amplify the voices of people most affected by an issue. Elect and campaign for people of color and seed, air time, seed space and air time instead of taking it. And jump in now if you're not doing this already. It's here, it's now, and we need to work together to transform this moment into one of solidarity and hope. Thank you. Our next speaker is Emily Pottest. Emily is a visual artist, musician, writer, and curator based here in Seattle. Please welcome her to the stage. 
I like what was said earlier about it being okay to fail. <laughs> um, my story is about something that happened here in Seattle in the art community that I'm part of. And um, believe it or not, it was, there was some pretty, we'll see. <laughs> it's a story about Seattle. <laughs> you can start me. Or, am I starting? So I, I do want to say it's an honor to be here, but I'm also suspicious of the idea that I can interrupt my own whiteness. Am I just pouring more whiteness into whiteness? Um, I also noticed on the Facebook page a lot, quite a bit of conversation, including the question of what it means to, um, for pachakacha to be a trademarked Japanese term owned by Westerners, so I said I'd mention that. Um, here's some famous artists. They're all white men. Um, so uh, the white male dominated history you learn in school teach, like not only are these the important people, but this also influences the standards of what's considered beautiful, what is collected by museums. Um, meanwhile, the sort of history of the museum is that they were literally invented to house trophies looted from conquered people. So when we're talking about storytelling and spaces and art spaces, there's quite a bit that you can do or not do to control how the narrative works. Um, there's also white supremacy in the way art gets funded, whether it's subject to capitalist market or funded by philanthropy, where billionaires who've gotten rich through capitalism are in the position to decide who deserves money. Um, or the fact that in order to get grants, you have to fill out paperwork demonstrating how responsible you will be with your money. And that the per perception of responsibility often depends directly on who you are and your connection within that system. Um, so I'm gonna tell you a story about something that happened that I was sort of part of and that I'm trying to, I, I was asked what work I'm doing personally and this is the work I'm doing personally. <laughs> so um, last fall, I was approached by Molly Mack, who's a really amazing curator at this gallery um, called the Alice Gallery in Georgetown. Um, she asked me to co-curate a sound show called Listen, It's a Sound Show. Um, so Molly is an anti-racist, anti-fascist organizer, and she was really interested in tying in sound art with activism, like asking the question, who or what do we listen to and why? Um, so she wanted to host things like spoken word and comedy and uh, Amamantari Migar, which is an oral history project based in Portland about the impact of immigration on breastfeeding mothers. Um, or Inye Wokoma, a Seattle artist who has a current exhibition at Northwest African American Museum um, thinking about gentrification and displacement, and his slide is next. And I'm like, yeah, of course, this is an amazing idea. I'm so into this. Um, so our exhibition was gonna be part of a larger festival, um, which had funding from a four-culture tech-specific grant, and Molly was also helping to curate several other shows for this same festival. Um, so this was back in September, we put together this whole show, we were very excited about it. Then about a week before our show was supposed to open, there was this opening night launch party organized around the theme of erasure by some out-of-town curators but affiliated with the same festival we were. Um, of the 40 artists, two of them were black. Um, their names are Jaleesa Trapp and Christopher Paul Jordan. Um, they were working on a project uh, which was a multimedia installation in their words about the need to refute evidence and artifacts of blackness. Um, their project included two Arduinos, two laptops, a projector. It was highly technological and very, very obviously highly fragile. 
Um, so a few hours before the opening, some of the organizers decided they needed to move the installation, but the artists weren't there. Instead of calling them on their phones, they moved the installation without the artist's permission and broke it, literally resulting in the erasure of a work about the erasure of artifacts of blackness in an event called Erasure in which they were the only two black artists. So I wasn't at this event, neither was Molly, but as soon as it happened, we started seeing all this discussion on Facebook. And as organizers of an affiliated event, we were like, holy shit, what do we do? Well, what does an apology look like? First of all, we're like, we need to get an apology out there. What does it look like? Five rules for apologizing like a grown up, I'm behind. You can't put yourself in anybody else's shoes. So you apologize, not, sorry you got offended, but I'm sorry for what I did. Um, these rules were written by Ijeoma, who's right over there. Um, if you're sorry, how do you do better next time? No buts, don't equivocate. Um, no, this was put together by someone else. Like this, your name is on this page, you're responsible for a, apology. And remember that forgiveness isn't part of the deal. This isn't for your ego to feel less guilt. This is for the person who experienced harm to hear you say that you see them as a fellow human being worthy of an apology. So we told this to the person who was organizing the festival and this was her response. This an actual photograph of her email to us. Um, <laughs> and um, she didn't understand why it was her job to apologize. And so when she finally issued a statement, it was a non-apology about explaining what went wrong from their perspective and minimizing her personal role in the whole thing. Um, and at this point, you might notice that I haven't mentioned the name of the person we're talking about or the festival we were working with, and it's very intentional. Because this whole time, in the behind the scenes emails, there's a language being used that's very litigious and threatening. The words character defamation are being used to describe angry people demanding an apology. So a week before our thing is supposed to open, we're, we're gonna email our artists about the event. We're like, we can't ask these artists who are telling these incredibly vulnerable stories that we wanna support and do justice to, to please promote this festival, which in this point is in the news for being a racist shit show. <laughs> so, um, and this wasn't the only show Molly was curating at the festival. So for her, it was a big deal and a ton of work she wasn't gonna get paid for, but we decided to cancel the event because we couldn't promote it in good faith. And we certainly couldn't ask anyone else to. And as soon as we announced this decision, we started hearing from artists and people in our community going, yeah, that was that's probably the right thing to do. But the festival organizer became very angry and called Molly unprofessional. This stung because she was working so hard and hadn't been paid anything yet. But if you think about it, what is professionalism? It's a word that gets used against people. Um, often it's a demand that you keep a smile on your face while something is going very wrong. Or when people tell you that they're, you're hurting them. You know, and you're figuring out how to use PR to spin it for the good of the organization instead of saying, oh my God, are you okay? Um, so out of this whole fiasco, we decided to apply for that same grant, get it, and host the exhibition ourselves, and host this exhibition about listening in a way that made it feel like we were listening to the artists. Um, if a show about erasure accidentally embodies erasure, can we make our show about listening embody listening? Um, it's a question and not a statement because I honestly do not know if two white women are actually capable of pulling ourselves out of the way enough to let the work itself be the narrative and just su support what it needs instead of exercising control or imposing our own agenda. 
but we are in a position to get that grant and use that institutional funding to provide a platform. So that last slide was a flyer for the show, which is this Saturday in Georgetown at Equinox Studios. And it's free and it's paid for by a cult for culture tech specific grant. And there are a lot of artists that if you're here tonight, I think you'd find it extremely interesting. A lot of conversation about listening and what that means in the context of an art event. And uh, you're all invited to come and see how well we do at making it better. <laughs> than the last thing it was supposed to be part of. <laughs> Loving the love for Emily Pottis. Um, our next speaker is my office mate, Hayden Bass. Hayden is Outreach Programs Manager for the Seattle Public Library. She is an active member of the Southeast Seattle Education Coalition and the Seattle King County NAACP. I'm also very honored to have her on the stage because she does really incredible work as a white ally at the library. Welcome, Hayden. Good evening, everyone. When Davida invited me to be part of this event, I hesitated for a lot of reasons. Uh, partly because I know that at times I have failed to interrupt white supremacy, sometimes because I didn't even see it. But I know that this isn't really about me. Uh, it's about recognizing my situation as a privileged person in an unjust system of power. It can be challenging for white people to see whiteness in a workplace like a public library. Staff work here because we believe in the mission to build community but that doesn't mean that white supremacy doesn't persist. Now, I love libraries, and I love this one in particular, and that's why it's necessary to be clear-eyed and honest about the work we need to do. What I hope to do tonight is to highlight a few of the ways I've seen white supremacy show up and share some of the mistakes I've made and some of the ways I'm trying to do better. Together, we can think about how we as white folks will make our workplaces safer for our colleagues of color and therefore better places for everyone to work and better positioned to do good work. So what does white supremacy look like in the workplace? A hierarchy with power and whiteness concentrated at the top. It's usually unchallenged. White staff point to factors that seem beyond our control. Library schools aren't graduating enough candidates of color or we're bound by rigid job descriptions or candidates of color aren't interested in working here. Hierarchy aside, white staff often fail to recognize and take responsibility for our own power and spheres of influence. I'm not at the top of the hierarchy, but I do have a platform and a place at decision-making tables, and my whiteness makes the stakes for speaking out very low. Ambiguity allows implicit biases to thrive. Murky communication protocols and undefined relationships between individuals and work teams mean that white staff can choose to communicate and network primarily with white colleagues. Staff of color miss connections and opportunities for advancement. Their morale sinks and the white hierarchy remains in place. White folks take credit for the work and ideas of people of color. We all know this. <laughs> Especially when it comes to racial justice work. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. Over the last couple of years, I managed a community engagement initiative here at the library. The approach came mainly through conversations with my former supervisor, Rika Couvert. 
My colleague, Sakithia Pugh, led the design of a crucial training we rolled out to staff all over the system, which continues to be foundational to our community engagement work. It wasn't my intention to erase their contributions, but my intentions are not the point. When I failed to act, white supremacy did its work. I got most of the credit and harmed them both. At SPL, decisions tend to be made in rooms full of white people, and nobody questions it, or maybe nobody even notices. Sometimes just one or two staff of color are expected to somehow represent the views of all people of color. We white folks have to point this out. We have to ask every time, how can we make ethical decisions while practicing exclusion? Similarly, race and social justice initiatives are undertaken by white staff working in isolation, eliminating opportunities for staff of color. I like this cartoon by Megan Nicole Dong. The toad points out that toad stories aren't being told, so the cat hurries to solve the problem by appropriating toad stories. A few years ago, I was on the library's social media team, which at the time was all white. We wanted to do a campaign for We Need Diverse Books, a movement led by authors of color to push for diversity in publishing. We planned the campaign without consulting any staff of color. I know. My supervisor, Rekha, I know now, uh, <laughs> had to point this out, and several coworkers, including Josie Watanabe, were gracious enough to consult with us on the back end, but it shouldn't have gone that way. Sometimes whiteness is so centered that the existence of people of color is erased, even when they're in the room. In a conversation about cultural competency, a coworker once said, well, we have to recognize that we're all middle-class white women. A colleague had to point out that she was, in fact, not white. White staff assume that it's never about race unless it's explicitly about race. White privilege means being able to pretend that decisions about hiring practices, committee structures, and communication norms can somehow be made in a colorblind vacuum. When staff of color speak out, they are not believed. How could such a thing happen in a place full of well-meaning white people? Or they are tone police. They are too angry, or they didn't speak up soon enough. If they choose to speak with colleagues one-on-one, -on -one, they are being confrontational. If they start a dialogue on the internet, they are being indirect. I can only imagine how difficult and dangerous this labor is. When white colleagues do internalize feedback, we respond with fragility, interpreting any criticism around race as a personal judgment. We get angry and defensive and point out our good intentions, ignoring the harm we've done and the structures that make it possible. We may even excuse ourselves from racial justice work since we're just not very good at it. So how do we stop being fragile and start fighting structural racism? White people have to have hard conversations with each other about race, both inside and outside of the workplace. As much as I appreciate everything I've learned from friends and colleagues of color, I realize it's not their job to teach me about my own whiteness. White people must hold each other accountable. And I especially have to be accountable to people of color. Building relationships, accepting critique, believing in their lived experiences, supporting and crediting their work. I also look for opportunities to join spaces led by people of color where I can play a supportive role. I'm not talking about invading POC safe spaces and affinity groups, but about finding ways to learn and work toward justice that aren't a burden to my friends and coworkers. For me, racial justice work is mainly about building better habits. I can't do it because I want to be seen as good. I have to do it because I want to be a little more free. I'm constantly learning from my friends and colleagues of color, and it would be impossible to adequately thank them for their insights and their patience. None of the ideas I've sh shared tonight came to me in isolation. 
Thanks to my coworkers Orlando Lugo and Davida Ingram for their willingness to talk with me about this, this talk, and to Rekha Couvert, who not only provided a ton of support for this talk, but over our many years as coworkers has somehow managed to be my supervisor, peer, mentor, and friend. Thanks also to CSEC's advocacy and policy cohort number three for helping me to continue to grow my thinking around race, and especially to Amy Liu and Erin Acuno for facilitating a color brave space. I appreciate all of you being here and listening and my fellow presenters for their insights. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Special stuff. Our next presenter is someone that I know is so dear to me and to so many people in this room, is, Di is Diana Falchuk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Diana is an artist, facilitator, organizer, consultant, strategist, policymaker, consultant, and mother <clears throat> whose work focuses on racial and social justice. Diana's practice uses creative, arts-based tactics to support anti-racism efforts in the community and through government and nonprofit organizations. Let's welcome the amazing Diana Falchuk. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, I'm ready. Is that good? Okay, wow, that was different. Thank you. I just want to start by expressing gratitude for all of the people who've made it possible for me to share tonight. The many people of color and white people who've gifted me the experience of their wisdom, generosity, and love for humanity. And I specifically want to thank the people of color who've given me permission to share the experiences that I've had with them. I also want to give some love to Anna, Caroline, and Davida. Um, and a little extra shout to Davida for her provocative framing for us presenters and her consistent love for this community. I know I'm gonna wrestle with the whiteness within and around me for the rest of my life. I recognize the thick malaise of my own whiteness that weighs me down with anxiety, isolation, and the need to be in control. Liberation is a hazy compass that I try to follow. I get lost, I cause harm, I fuck up a lot. I'm learning every day and I try to apply that learning honestly and share it with others. I came to recognize the feeling of whiteness in my body for the first time a couple years ago as a result of the bravery of a person of color I supervised who asked to remain anonymous. In this experience, she had decided to help facilitate a training for a people of color-led community group in a nearby city. She'd already met the limitations on how much of this kind of support that I said our team could give. I had a whole bunch of reasons for these rules that had to do with fitting the norms of the institution. I defended the reasons that, I, that it was what I was supposed to do, I thought, but in my gut, I did not believe them. Mostly my reason was because I said so. When I heard from a mutual friend that this person I supervised had been at the training anyway, I felt violated and confused. I told her I felt deeply disrespected and asked her to leave the training because I was now in a position to have to lie to my superiors at the institution. When we talked in person, she had only one thing to say, an unexpected gift that completely reset my path in this work and in my life. She asked me to reflect on how I caused harm to her and the community and come back to her when I had an authentic understanding of my own to share. 
My gut was on fire with anger and anxiety. I could barely eat or sleep. Seriously, I had to reflect. My reaction felt almost automatic. I recognized that it was totally out of scale with what had happened. So I reached out to a few white friends who had an anti-racism practice and could help me make sense of my feelings. And they held me in a way I am forever grateful. Being asked to reflect opened up space for me to learn how insidious white supremacy can be, how it burrows in my body, in every body, every interaction, every decision, especially within our institutions. I began to put a name to that burning anxiety in my upper gut. It was my humanity, battling against my internalized whiteness. The thing that tells me I'm right to believe that my comfort and the comfort in the institution are more important than people of color. I began to understand how I could go deeper in the work by decentering these comforts and centering people of color so I could be part of collective change. I was still grappling when I shared my emerging awareness a week later. I'd gotten in the way of this opportunity for her and our team to help build collective anti-racist power in our region. I was committed to struggling, to building a relationship that supported her to undoing white institutional norms. I've come to understand this as a defining characteristic of whiteness. It cuts us off from the collective so we stay disembodied, unwell, and obedient to capitalism. Her decision to support community power over whiteness embodied collective liberation. Her request that I reflect allowed me to feel whiteness being interrupted. I got to experience breaking through that transactional, efficient way that had rewarded me in the past. I listened to her and to my gut. I stuck around even though I felt hopeless in my discomfort. And this allowed something deeper, grounded, and interconnected to emerge. Not long after that cracking open, I was once again called away from whiteness toward embodiment through a project called Toward Love in Public, which was the first created, creative output of a group of white artists seeking to use our creative work to address whiteness. Toward Love responded to the question, what do you need to unearth, release, or reclaim in order to show up for true justice and liberation? This January, we invited other white folks to interact with this collection of short works about ancestry, assimilation, and freedom from whiteness. We informally shared with various artist friends of color through the process and invited several of them to dinner in April to explore what accountability would look like if we continue the project. Shelby Handler, who we'll share later tonight, will explain more of the many ways that these artists of color interrupted whiteness that night. But I'm gonna focus on Christabel and Christina Orbe, who gave us a call to heal ourselves from whiteness not in the spa treatment, protecting white comfort kind of way, <laughs> right? And not gentrifying identity politics, which was wisdom that Davida Ingram shared with us that night, and which we know would further displace people of color. But healing our personal humanity from white supremacy's historic wounds on our families, ourselves, our future generations. This includes forming relationships of deep love and mutual concern that are rooted in a common vision of shared power, wholeness, and joy. This set our group on a new path, a soulful path. Whiteness keeps trying to yank me out of the struggle. More and more to stay in it, I'm trying to move not from guilt, shame, or fear, but from a desire to co-create a world that honors my, me and my ancestors and sustains all of our children, the planet, and its animals. A world so abundant in networks of mutuality and po that poverty and disease and planetary death are not entrenched inevitabilities, but rather events that we can overcome. I'm trying to hold a vision that includes constant, deep listening to people of color and building loving relationships with other white people that are accountable by telling each other the hard truths. When my son Zev launched through my body into this world a year ago, 
he turned my belly button from an innie to an outie. It reminds me that he's forever pulling me toward a world in which we both get to learn what it means to be human inside a white body and a racist society. I pray that my loving struggle against whiteness will make him even more resistant, resilient, interdependent, full of heart, and whole. Thank you. speaker is <clears throat> Annalise Stelzer Terminello. She's lived in Seattle since 2011. She is the mom of her almost three-year-old son. She is a self-proclaimed beginner to the hard work of racial justice. Please welcome Annalise. I want to show up for racial justice. I asked, I asked if I could be the voice of a white person tonight who really doesn't know how to interrupt whiteness, but is trying. I think there are others like me who need a reason to start. My name is Annalise Stelzer Terminello. I grew up in a white, upper middle class, devoutly Christian family in Arlington, Texas, a large suburb between Dallas and Fort Worth. I moved to Seattle in 2011. I met my husband here. Our son was born here. He's almost three years old. I believe that the first and most important thing that a white person can do to dismantle white supremacy is to do the work to deconstruct it within themselves. One of the way that I'm doing this is by analyzing the images and messages that our white dominant society has told us from childhood. Here are a couple of personal examples of this. This sounds silly to say now, but I didn't know that Jesus was not white until I walked into an open church in the Central District that had Jesus and his disciples depicted in photographs as people from the Middle East. That blew my mind because growing up in a white Christian household in the South, all of the pictures of Jesus were white and all of the children sitting at his feet were white. I have an almost three-year-old son who, like most children, loves picture books. When choosing children's books, I started noticing how white-centric almost all of them were. At first, most of the images were of white children in the center with children of color, if featured at all, off to the side or in the background. Here are the messages I perceive from these images. White people should be positioned at the center, should be the leaders in our society, that their voices should be heard first and that we should listen to them the most. I don't want my son to unconsciously receive these messages because they are not true. I started seeking out anti-bias children's literature at the Seattle Public Libraries. I am looking specifically for books that center people of color as the main character that tell stories of people of color either historically or fictionally and are written by people of color. I live in central Seattle and work in Rainier Beach. So the two libraries that I started looking at for children's literature were the Capitol Hill Library and the Rainier Beach Library. I found that there are a lot more options for children's literature featuring people of color in the Rainier Beach Library. I recently found a really great book there about a native boy and his family called Thunder Boy Junior by Sherman Alexi and illustrated by Yuyi Morales. My son attends a cooperative preschool that is located at the MLK Fame Community Center that has an anti-bias curriculum. I was talking to the teacher about my search for books featuring people of color and she said that if you go ask the librarian, 
They will pull out a huge stack of books that have an anti-bias message. I'm going to try that next, not just with books, but with movies too. Our task is not to exempt ourselves from the impact of these conditioning forces, but rather to continually seek to identify how these forces shape us and manifest in our specific lives and interrupt those manifestations. A quote by Dr. Robin D'Angelo, who's speaking tonight in her article, No, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy. Another way that I am starting to do the hard work of deconstructing white supremacy within myself is through continuing education. Here is where this started for me. One of my first jobs in Seattle was as a food bank coordinator. I was invited to attend a cultural competency workshop facilitated by Dr. Caprice Hollins. Through this workshop, I basically realized that everything that I thought I knew about black people was from watching TV shows growing up. These TV shows were not produced by black people. I was exposed. I believed, or probably still believe on some level, these cultural stereotypes with not, without knowing it or wanting to. As a member of the mostly white Seattle First Baptist Church Choir, I recently participated in a joint project singing with the choir of an African-American church located in Renton called New Beginnings Christian Fellowship for an MLK Day service. This project required extra rehearsal time and travel, but the First Baptist Choir Director insisted that we do it in an effort to show up for racial justice. The Mass Choir was directed by the music minister Sam Townsend Jr. of New Beginnings Christian Fellowship in the oral tradition of African music, American mu spiritual music. One of the songs that we sang together was the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, a song that was unfamiliar to me and, the most, and most of the people in the First Baptist Choir. We made the effort to memorize the Black National Anthem for the MLK Day service and had the privilege of singing it in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters in the choir and in the audience. From this very powerful experience, I realized how little interaction I have with people of color on a daily basis. I realized that if I want to be among people of color and want my son to grow up among people of color, that I need to make a real effort to put myself in those positions because it just isn't going to happen on its own. I started thinking of what else I can do to be among people of color, to listen to them, to learn about their experiences. I can read informative books written by people of color, such as The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, in order to start learning about the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration of black Americans. I can go to events and workshops that are organized by people of color, such as the event we are attending now. I can find nonprofit organizations that are led by people of color, like the Rainier Beach Action Coalition and El Centro de la Raza, and offer my time as a volunteer. I can take my son to public parks and community centers that are in more diverse areas of Seattle, such as Rainier Beach, Othello, and Beacon Hill. These are small, small steps. It has to start somewhere, and it doesn't stop here. It is on white people to break out of our comfort zones, realize that things have changed, and initiate our continuing education and skill building. Again, from Dr. Robin D'Angelo. I recognize that in my undertaking, in undertaking my own journey of deconstructing white supremacy, my thinking and actions must be informed by the contributions of generations of anti-racist activists and scholars who have already done this work. I recognize that I must work with intention and accountability with communities of color and that my role is a supporting role in the collective work to end racism. I am thankful that I was given the opportunity to speak tonight, thank you. 
I am so grateful to Davida Ingram, an organizer of this event and a person of color, for showing me the article written by Dr. Robin D'Angelo that was so informative to my presentation, for graciously and patiently offering critique, and for challenging me to think deeper about racial justice. Thank you. Annalisa is the kind of mom that I want to come to the library all the time. She also reminded me that we have a very um, awesome reading list that's available. So if you see the book display, please check it out. Um, and you can, if you have your library card, you can check out those books and you can also take the reading list um, for further reference. So thank you, Annalise. I also wanted to mention we're about midway through our program and we're about to have our next speaker, but I also wanted to mention that we have advocates just in case um, you feel like you want to talk to someone. So can we have Sakina and Polly wave their hands? So if you find that you'd like to check in with someone, we do have two advocates in the room and I want to thank them for coming out. Polly is all the way at the top and thank you for everybody at the top. Is our sound okay? If you're at the top, can you hear us okay? All right, so we will say for speakers, please belt it out so the folks at the top can hear. All right, our next speaker is Jim Jewell. Jim is a writer, performer, and educator. He is English faculty at North Seattle College where he also instigates theatrical productions and drama-based faculty development workshops. He is an active playwright and storyteller on stages across Seattle and the communications director for the 1418 Projects. Please welcome Jim Jewell. I will uh, do my best to be loud enough for the uh, cheap seats. This was to be a year of me speaking less and listening more, which can be a challenge when you're a teacher, but especially within discussions of social justice, I wanted to be more of a learner. But I also pledged to be more present for discussions that white people too often have the option to skip, to protest white people too often feel comfortable watching on TV. So when Lola Peters asked me to participate in Interrupting Whiteness, I said yes on the spot. But I imagine almost every white person presenting tonight here has had to ask in some way, on some level, implicitly or explicitly, why am I here? Why should my voice be heard again already? And there's definitely some anxiety. So this is what all white people do. Uh, when we feel anxious or depressed, we listen to Radiohead. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Uh, I tend to try to bring some levity to serious topics because the news is so depressing and the world is a mess and we have to laugh to keep from crying or screaming. I'm here because I'm an educator at North Seattle College. Though I'm not here as an official representation of the college, I'm just here as me, but my experience is shaped by where I teach. My campus is incredibly diverse in terms of age and class and race and language and country of origin. It can be a deceptive diversity. My international students often say they think that instructors are obsessed with racism, and then I ask them how many people look different from them where they grew up, and the answer is usually none. Still, our campus takes diversity and equity seriously. From faculty development to community gatherings to hiring practices, we encourage and create space for discussions across every type of cultural context. 
When I talk about what I've learned about confronting racism, and I want to give credit to the people of color who have contributed to that education, often I can't because they're my students. But when I can talk about how and why I teach the way I do, I point to Dr. Lawrence Thomas, who taught me to bring academic rigor to political philosophy, and Dr. David Hare, who taught me how important language is when he said to me, minority, listen to the word. Do you want to be it? So now I try to bring that same critical focus down to individual word choice into my classrooms. I teach composition, which allows me great freedom in selecting re uh, readings. And I foreground and normalize the, the, work, uh, the use of the work of writers of color, both confronting the experiences of these diverse thinkers and the silent implication that they haven't earned that inclusion based on their academic and rhetorical merits. I employ a critical pedagogy in my classroom that incorporates examination of systems of power and identity into daily practice that asks every student to reflect on their understanding of themselves and their world to question everything. I believe that there is no renouncing my authority in the classroom just as there's no, no renouncing my whiteness and the privilege it carries. I believe that any teacher who claims to be colorblind has no right to be standing at the head of a class. And so I also believe it's not enough to confront racism in the classroom, that it has to extend outside, that white people sometimes have to be willing to stand up. So when a white administrator objected publicly that Michael Brown Jr. was identified as an unarmed black teenager in promotions for his grieving father's campus visit, I refuted him in detail publicly and met with him privately, only to have him explain that recognizing the history of racism would only privilege the other side and that racism no longer was an issue in 2016. And when he held up his evidence, the African-American president of my college said, how can we be a racist institution with a black president? I hope that what I could offer was that no person of color had to sit and listen to that shit. <laughs> but I'm also really careful to recognize that across the need to stand up is the need to sit down, that I have to be wary of the allure of being a white savior no one asked me to be. So I brought Buddy Christ for a little bit more levity before I get to the most difficult part. Because I've had to decide what kind of teacher I want to be. What am I going to believe? Aspiring to some platonically ideal combination of Robin Williams' dead poet's inspiration, Jaime Escalante's motivation, and Joe Clark's indomitable spirit, because apparently I learned how to teach from watching movies. But one idea that has always stood out I discovered through Ken Robinson's TED Talk, and that is the difference between the task and achievement aspects of the verb to teach. Because if I teach, but nothing is learned, what have I done? Outcomes matter, and every student has a right to the opportunity to learn, and not all students can be reached in the same way. I have to try to craft messages not always in the ways I want to, but in the ways that will be effective. And there will be students like the young white man whose rough draft attempted to criticize bell hooks for hiding behind a fake name, and who was dismayed and repentant when I simply explained the history of African American family naming. But there will also be the young white man who wrote to me, looking around me here at Western Washington University, it's obvious minorities don't care about college. And he was much harder to reach. He had to be taken along the path with baby steps to get him there at all. And I realized that that is incrementalism and a compromise. And I also believe it's one that I have to make. So much of what I do is negotiating and discussing compromise, dueling with the devils and the details behind my support for students who talk down oppressive racist speech, who feel no need to welcome bigoted voices into their communities, 
against my reticence to back calls for faculty resignation in times of conflict. And so I know sometimes I disappoint the people of color in my life. The best I can do is try my best to do what is right, to learn from every attempt, successful or not, and to apologize truly when I am wrong. I know some folks like to add never again to this list, but I find that wishful thinking and know there will be no end to my earnest mistakes. And that really is the work that I think white people most need to do. We need to learn to risk and recognize being in the wrong, being wrong, and to apologize and listen and learn and know we will be wrong again. Because there's no greater lesson I have learned in my attempts to push back on racism and classism and sexism and homophobia than this. To be an ally is an aspiration, not a destination. It is not something you attain, but for which you eternally strive. You don't get woke. You work to stay woke. And you have to accept it as work that you will never, ever stop doing. Thank you. Can we have another round of applause for Jim? I am very thrilled to tell you two things. One, we're midway, about midway through our show. Two, I just got word from our parking garage that we can be a little bit beyond 9.30, so if you are worried about getting your car, you don't have to be. Um, the garage normally closes at 9.30, and I think we're running a little bit late, but I think we'll be okay. Um, so that's, that's one modest thing. Two is, the next person up is one of the most luminous voices for racial justice in the city of Seattle and also nationally. Aren't we so proud that one of the most powerful voices for racial justice is a Seattle homegirl? Can you please give a warm round of welcome to Ijeoma Aluo? Thanks so much, Davida. Um, literally the only person who can get me out socializing amongst other individuals. I am a known antisocial grumpy pants. Um, but Davida emails me like, hey, you want to do this thing? I'm like, whatever, sure, yeah, I'll do it. Um, hi, I am Ijeoma Oluo, and I am a mixed race black woman who was raised by a white mother in this very white city. I have a PhD in whiteness. Um, and, you know, I was raised in the Seattle nice. I was kind of, you know, steeped in the good intentions of this city. And I hate it 
Um, I love the city. I love you guys. Also, I hate it. I really do. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit why. I write, I write about race. And I'm regularly reached out to by really well-meaning white people who want to explain to me um, what my work is like to them as a white person and what, you know, the white perspective that I'm missing. <laughs> and um, the only part of the white perspective I'm missing is the ability to be unaware of the white perspective. And that may sound a little arrogant, but if you're a person of color who grew up especially in an area like this, um, you understand that every decision you make, you're going, what will white people think about this? Uh, you have to. You find out around kindergarten, usually, um, that you've misjudged something and there were disastrous consequences. Maybe it's a friend's house you're no longer allowed to go to or a letter home from your teacher, but you know really quickly that if you don't know uh, what white people want, what they're doing and why, what's going to make them mad, what's going to make them scared, what's going to make them happy, you will not be able to go anywhere. Not only are you hyper aware of your blackness or your identity of color because there's a spotlight on you 24-7, especially in a city like this where there's five of you, um, you have to be hyper aware of whiteness as well. And what I've noticed is that nothing really threatens the uh, Seattle identity of liberal utopia than asking white people to acknowledge what whiteness is and where it is in their lives. People tell me to stop making things about race all of the time. When you are not making things about race, you're making them about whiteness all of the time. Every decision that you make with ease is made with whiteness. Every door that opens for you is opened by whiteness. And I know this sounds like I am taking away all of your achievements, and I'm not. But I need you to understand that from the Constitution, to our education system, to our pop culture, everything that we do is steeped in whiteness. And when you do not acknowledge that, you make it about race. Because then I have to navigate what you won't see. I am tripping over the roadblocks that you don't even know that you're placing in front of me. I am drowning in whiteness. And you can't help me if you can't see it. Now, it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to realize how much easier you may have had things. It is uncomfortable to realize that a lot of the benefits that you may have came at the expense of other people. That makes you feel bad. It makes you feel guilty. And I do not have a solution for that because it should make you feel bad and it should make you feel guilty. That is not my goal. I mean, sometimes it makes me smile. <laughs> but I have bigger things to worry about. But I will say this, it will not kill you. 
But if you don't see it, it will kill me, or it will kill my brother, or it will kill my sons. You have to get used to this. We are drowning in it, and the least you can do is be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable a lot. And if you are comfortable, take that as a sign that you need to make things more uncomfortable. Do not wait until you are ready to sit down and address race to address race, because I do not get to decide when to address race. I don't get to say, I feel safe, I feel comfortable, I'm going to look at racism now, because racism hits me in the doctor's office. It hits me when I'm driving down the street. It hits me when I'm taking my kids to a movie. Get used to being uncomfortable. Be the person that nobody wants to invite to dinner parties. <laughs> you are going to get pushback. And I think what we've seen, we have seen a lot of pushback, right, to the change in national discussion around race. And a lot of what I hear from people is, see, this is what happens. You push too hard. You're going with these identity politics. Of course there's going to be pushback. To investigate whiteness as a threat to identity, to comfort, to privilege, to status. But what is the alternative? Is the alternative then to back off? People are dying. You just keep pushing. You keep going. People push back when they are threatened. And I would love to say that this is not a threat. I would love to say that it is a win-win to address whiteness, but it's not. Some of what you have, you don't deserve. But when you can see your identity clearly as it is, the good and the bad, when you can see where your whiteness is more than just heritage, more than just culture, but also a system of oppression. You then have the power to do the work to redefine it to something that you can be proud of. But you can't fake it. You cannot just pick up the positive and say that that's all that there is. This will be uncomfortable and it will be painful. But if you continue to do the work, you will have a sense of authenticity in yourself that you have never known. You will stop having to steal all of our stuff. You will have your own stuff. And that's really what I need you to do. I don't need someone standing right next to me doing what I'm doing. If black people could end racism, we would have ended racism. We have died trying to end systemic racism. I need you to do the work in your communities. And it starts with looking at the day-to-day -day things. What will kill me may not be a cop. It will be my lack of access to quality medical care. It will be my lack of access to quality education. It will be the loans that I am denied. It will be all of the thousands of cuts that people of color endure every single day in white supremacist society. And that is where your life intersects with it. Every time you go through something and it's easy for you, you look around and you say, who is it not easy for? 
and what can I do to dismantle that system? But in order to do that, you have to be willing to look at it and see it as a part of the system of whiteness because that's what it is. And then, eventually, you will not be so tense. You will not be so defensive because you will know that even if you aren't there, you are actually doing concrete things to make whiteness something that helps instead of hurts. And I know you can do that. I've seen what white people can do when they put their minds to things. I love you, Seattle. And I hope that we can start looking at kindness, which is honest and built with love, over niceness, which prioritizes comfort over safety. We can do this, but first you have to start with yourselves. And then you'll find your place every single day that you can make a measurable impact on not only the lives of people of color, but your own life as well. Thank you. I have to introduce Randy Engstrom, but I can't talk. <laughs> Thank you, Igioma. Thank you so much. Randy, where are you? Hello. Thank you so much for coming today. Randy Engstrom has been a passionate advocate and organizer of cultural and community development for over 15 years. He is currently the director of the Office of Arts and Culture for the City of Seattle. Since his appointment to the position in 2012, he has worked with staff to grow grant-making programs and public art opportunities while establishing and investing in new programs and policies in arts education, cultural space, affordability, and racial equity. He serves on the boards of Grantmakers in the Arts, the U.S. Urban Arts Federation, and, and FEAST. Let us please welcome Randy Engstrom. Note to self, don't go right after Ijoma. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Randy. I'm ready to go whenever the... Closer to the mic. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you to the organizers of this event, um, to Davida, to Anna, to Caroline. Um, I come into any space like this with all the privilege one can imagine, and I think I have to name and center that first. So um, I realize I'm walking into a space with every imaginable privilege, and I know because of this exercise that I've done a bunch of times, this isn't the exact one I did with the city, but it's the one I found on the internet, the target agent exercise. Um, 
I literally am the agent in every single measure of privilege, uh, from age to income to sexual orientation to skin color to gender to everything. So that's what I mean by privilege. Um, I guess my awareness of this issue sort of came to me when I was in college at the Evergreen State College, evacuated today under the threat of racial violence. Um, I came into it with a background in um, sort of activism and social justice issues, but I didn't really get uh, race. And then I read this book as part of my senior thesis, How the Irish Became White, and had no idea that whiteness was a completely invented social construct that held up uh, systemic oppression and white supremacy. Um, and I had been complicit in that system for all of my years on the earth to date and continue to be complicit in it in uh, conscious and unconscious ways. So who did I learn from and how did I learn to try to interrupt my own whiteness? A lot of that starts for me at the Youngstown Cultural Arts Center that I had the great privilege to found in 2005. Um, and really it was about learning from people of color who knew a hell of a lot more than I did about running and building community. Um, one thing we did uh, was we invited the People's Institute to come and do a two-day training, not just for our staff at Youngstown, but for the staff of all the organizations in the building, and we invited the upstairs residents, because if we didn't have a shared analysis uh, and we didn't have common language, it was gonna be awfully difficult to talk about how we do this work well and together. Um, shout out to the People's Institute, also Minority Executive Directors Coalition, RSJI, Governing, for Racial, Governing Alliance for Racial Equity. There's a lot of good trainers out there. Lara Davis is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met, and it's from her that I, thank you, Lara. I learned about distributed leadership and that command and control structures like the ones in the government that employs me now are really another system of oppression that holds up uh, institutional systems. Uh, and so if you can distribute your leadership through organizations like Feast, you can actually interrupt those systems and you can put power in the hands of more people, particularly those most impacted by the work you're trying to do. Feast is an incredible organization run by people of color and youth uh, that is transforming Southeast or Southwest Seattle. Um, I also had some great teachers in Christina Orbe and Robbie Ascalon who co-founded uh, Feast. And I was uh, fortunate to be on that journey with them for a good long time. I'm still on their board. And I learned about what accountable leadership really looks like. I learned about what it means to be called to accountability, to be called in, to be called out, um, and to do better. Hollis Wongware and Alberto Mejia were also folks I had the good fortune to work with. And I learned both about the concept of heart space, emotional intelligence, and artist leadership. Really all those, every single one of those folks are artists and leaders and artistic leaders. Um, but I learned about the value of this being personal because if it's not personal, it's not gonna stick. And this isn't an intellectual exercise, this is a life of practice. Um, Davida Russell has been, the other Davida, as she sometimes goes by, uh, taught me everything I know, not everything I know, but an awful lot about what I know about authentic leadership. And that a choice between your values and showing up in your power is a false choice. You can do both, you must do both, and you have to lead with your values. Another prompt we got was asking um, how we are asked to show up, and that can look like support, financial, physical. Uh, that can look like advocacy, getting into rooms that some folks can't get into, and that can look like leadership when appropriate and if done well. Um, one of the projects that I found very inspiring recently, this is a terrible picture, I apologize for my poor curation, is the Black and Tan Hall in Hillman City. And when I think about really inspiring projects that are coming up in Seattle right now, POC-led, community-owned, brilliant and vibrant, I'm gonna show up with tools and I'm gonna show up with a checkbook. 
um, because it's important to do that work. Sometimes uh, I have a job like running the Office of Arts and Culture or being on the board of Grantmakers in the Arts or being at the table for US Urban Arts Federation and it's my job to show up and challenge systemic power and try to get them to understand why dismantling systems of racism are the most important work we can do as a field. Um, they don't always listen, but that is part of the work. Um, and this is like a huge thing for me, which is that if it's not personal, it won't matter. I know I said it's not an intellectual, organ, uh, intellectual exercise. I think Roger said it so beautifully about the spiritual nature of this work, but this isn't a day job. And if this isn't something that matters to you all the time, not just when you're on the clock, it's not anything that's ever gonna change. And a tool is only as effective as your ability to use it. Um, this is the slide for you're not as far as you think you are, or, or we're, not, we're not there yet. And I think someone said this earlier, but the moment at which a white person thinks they've nailed it, they have achieved wokeness, they are no longer racist, start over, because you didn't. Um, never assume that you're further along than you are, and always carry your humility in front. Um, share your power. Hire people of color. Invest in their leadership. Get out of the way. Uh, a lot of these systems and structures that I've worked in my whole career are designed to privilege people who look an awful lot like me and don't be bound by the systems that we assume are the ones that have to be there. Um, we fail all the time. I fail all the time. Um, admit you're wrong and not in the sorry, not sorry way that we saw earlier, but like in the real be sorry. Um, know that getting called out and getting called in is part of this work and sometimes when it hurts, that's how you know it's working. Um, I've been called out and called in lots of times and continue to to this day. I'm really grateful for that. Um, at times I've said, I, I've heard from my peers and colleagues that we don't walk our talk and that's true because uh, we're not there yet. Um, also, we're not an anti-racist organization and don't throw that term around because I've done that before and I was called to task. Um, we know that the systems that we've built and inherited haven't worked. We can see all around us every day what it's led to, and we can do better. I know that I can do better, I know that I will do better, and I invite all of you to hold me accountable. Thank you for the time. Our next speaker is Christina Reed. Christina is a multidisciplinary artist whose conceptual work explores social, political, and cultural issues. Reed has earned a BFA in painting from UW School of Art and grants from Seattle Print Arts and Pratt Art Fine Arts Center. Please welcome Christina. Good evening. Thank you. Here? Okay, good evening. Uh, thank you for being here, and thank you to Davida and Anna and, and Carolyn for organizing this program. I'm a visual artist whose practice addresses whiteness and race in our culture. Tonight I'll talk about my ongoing path in becoming accountable to communities of color. Oh, okay, I'm hearing impaired, so we'll see if this works. I'm so far behind now. <laughs> All right, first I profoundly thank my powerful teachers each taught me technical skills, but more importantly, shared their perspectives and work rooted in social justice and humanity. I hold them with me always, striving to be accounting, to being accountable to them drives my work. And thanks to those who support me and keep me grounded, my family who loves me always, friends who offer feedback and encouragement, 
supporters who have provided me with opportunities, guides who illuminate the questions I must ask, and organizations from whom I learn in a shared space. I was raised with a social justice lens amidst many social justice movements. I marched in student solidarity with people of color, seeing myself as a good white person doing the right thing, but all the while disconnected from my privileged white supremacist history and actions. Prior to retirement, I worked for, in HR for city government. I became increasingly aware of the difference in workplace experiences based on race. White employees were not saddled by their white racial identity and supremacy, whereas employees of color navigated race and racism day in and day out. Valuable voices not heard, opportunities missed, connections lost, worth discounted. Code words keeping white supremacy in place. Racism neg negatively impacted the life expectancy, financial security, personal self-worth of people of color. Interruption was required. I needed to learn from a myriad of voices about our country's history of structural racism and the impact of my participation in it. Fortunately, valuable training resources were available, developed through the insight and tireless work of people of color, like Mary Flowers, Ben Knox, Jermaine Covington, and Darlene Flynn. At the same time, I was trying to figure out how to address race and racism, social justice in my art practice. Try as I did, nothing coalesced. Then I discovered printmaking and Pratt Fine Arts Center. Things began to fall into place. I found a way to talk about racism as consciously as I could. Racism is, of course, layered and complex. I found I could address the complexities using printmaking techniques. I layered historical and cultural imagery to address how the construct of whiteness has set the stage for racial disparities in all of our practices and policies and systems. Initially, these portraits came from a place of perceived empathy. Soon questions within me arose. What is my, my part, the white part, in the deep discord and acts of racism in our country? What's the impact of a white artist doing this work? With introspection and feedback, I began moving toward accountability on a deep, deeper level. The feedback that was freely given was more often where accountability happened. My understanding of my whiteness shapes my work, how it shapes my work deepened and way to challenge it became more clear. Feedback helped me shift my focus to the, to the construct of whiteness itself and our country's historical contradiction of building, maintaining a system of enslavement and exploitation of people who are non-white in the guise of promoting life, liberty, and happiness for all. I use layering to disrupt racial narratives that have been taught and persist today. I print imagery from the public domain depicting racist actions, policies, and systems, and translucent overlays, uh, wording from historical laws and documents that contradict the paper's industry. These are the questions I must always be asking. Is the impact of my work meeting its intent? What is the work I need to do here and now as a white person? How do I build relationship with and be accountable to people of color? How can I move out of my comfort zone, risking having my assumptions challenged? 
My focus has shifted towards documenting white people upholding white supremacy and away from documenting its impact on, um, on people of color. My aim is to highlight the contradiction between the narrative and action and raise awareness, elicit conversation on how to be active participants in dismantling it. Layering both obscures and highlights the contradiction between the narrative and the action. And when the contradic contradiction comes into focus, that's where the conversation can begin. I believe art can be a bridge between converse conversation and action, the catalyst for accountability and change. My art will always be practiced through a white lens. To disrupt its power requires being in relationship with those who le whose lenses are not white. It requires a vigilance and always asking, what does white mean? What does being white mean in this situation, this encounter? What am I failing to see? What's the work I need to do here, now, and always? What it means to be white in America and to break the silence that surrounds it requires arduous, persistent, and soul-searching work. Fortunately, I have those uh, from which I learn. My good intentions are not enough. Deep work is to be done, which means becoming engaged in activities and organizations led by people of color, respecting the priorities they identify as strategies for change, and sustaining engagement over time. I'll end with these pieces that focus on behaviors that keep racism in place. Words are etched onto back-to-back -back mirrors hung at eye level. And as they swivel, the words reflected to the, back to the viewer and um, off of each other. It's conversation, eliciting conversation. Thank you. Big thank you. <laughs>
Reason number two to be conflicted, our words are not to be trusted alone. They should be taken not with grains of salt, but truckloads of salt. Sorry. How can you ever really know if a white person is interrupting whiteness if white people are your sole sole source of intel? Let me put it another way. If you want to know how well the police force is serving the community, don't ask a police officer. Ask the people they serve, especially the brown and black communities. Ask that Ferguson resident. And the same is true for teachers. If you want to know how well I, as a white teacher, interrupt whiteness, don't ask me. Ask my students, especially my students of color. And yes, they look happy in that photo, but I could have been postponing a homework assignment, not interrupting whiteness in that moment. (laughs) Yet despite all these conflicts about being here, I'm grateful that public education is represented tonight. Let me read you an excerpt from a local story. Quote, about 20 years ago, Seattle Public Schools assigned a a committee to look at why black students were more likely than others to be suspended or expelled. But nearly two decades later, little has changed, end quote. This article is from 2001, the same year I began my my career with Seattle Public Schools, referencing documented disparities that are now 36 years old, and the disparities have gotten worse. In 2013, the Seattle Times reported that a black middle school schooler is nearly four times as likely to be suspended as a white student, a disparity so severe that it attracted a federal, education, a federal investigation by the Department of Education. Black students are so poorly served that on average they test three and a half grade levels behind white students. The disparity is nearly as great for Latinx students. The dropout rate, what we might want to call the push-out rate for Native students, is over double that of the district average. Folks, we are in a state of emergency, and public education, for the most part, has been let off the hook. We, as educators, are part of systems that replicate egregious racial disparities, and so why aren't we treating the status quo like a state of emergency? Arguably, the answer is the topic that brings us here tonight, whiteness. And when I say whiteness, I could be meaning the color of the advanced classes or the color of fundraising in segregated schools across Seattle. I could be talking about the color of educators. I could be talking about the color of the curriculum. And all those contributors uh, are matter. But tonight, I want to shine a spotlight on curriculum. Perhaps you've heard the proverb, until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Conventional history is undeniably biased in favor of white Americans, the one group that has consistently benefited from centuries of discrimination. That's why slavery is too often sanitized in textbooks and classrooms. That's why we too often call the invasion of indigenous lands manifest destiny or westward expansion. That's why we too often call the incarceration of 120,000 people of Japanese descent internment. Let's face it, we teachers teach who we are and we teach what we know and over 80% of us are white. Consequently, in a profession over 80% white, white teachers invariably teach curricula, thoroughly bleached and warped by whiteness. So how do we interrupt the prevalence of whiteness in public education? Again, take what I say with a truckload of salt, please. I'm gonna attend this event. Uh, June 15, and hear from my colleagues of color. At the time I wrote this script, there were far fewer Seattleites committed to this event than they were for this, for, for this one. Ethnics, oh, but since you are here and not there, let me offer one solution, ethnic studies, which emerged out of the civil rights movement and are currently experiencing a resurgence. According to Seattle teacher Tracy Gill, ethnic studies is reversing the idea of white as the default race. 
Ethnic studies literally interrupt whiteness by decentering white as a dominant perspective. I learned the hard way that in our current setup, you are on your own when you decenter whiteness in the classroom. In 2012, one white family objected to the study of race I was teaching, arguing that lessons on racism were intimidating to white students. Seattle Public Schools was caught unprepared and transferred me, effectively killing the curriculum, at least temporarily, I did win my job back. Ethnic studies, however, institutionalize such curricula, which is why I'm backing the NAACP's push to institute ethnic studies throughout Seattle schools, led by Rita Green. I'm urging, I'm urging you to do the same. Here's an image from our launch on Martin Luther King Day. All the research supports ethnic studies as a solution to these urgent racial disparities. In January 2016, Stanford published the results of a long-term study that showed ethnic studies increasing attendance, GPA, credits earned for our most marginalized students. Unfortunately, it's not folks of color who need convincing. It's white Americans, which is why I'm here tonight, and which is why I wrote that piece, arguing that it's in white people's own best interest to learn ethnic studies. We're the ones who disproportionately get racism wrong. We're the ones who disproportionately remain disengaged. The reality is that my whiteness protects me from negative race-based experiences that folks of color experience all the time. So here's what I've learned. I have to actively put myself into the line of fire, and you'll know you're doing it because you'll start to get some pushback. It could come in the form of white supremacist trolls or administrative transfers. But that pushback is how I get negative race-based experiences as a white person. And if I'm not getting that negative race-based experience, am I really interrupting whiteness? Here's what you could do. You could attend this, uh, this event. Tell the Seattle School Board to mandate ethnic studies. They are taking too long. White people have had their turn as the curricular protagonist. They've had their turn for centuries. It's time for somebody else to take a turn. That's a lesson so basic that little children learn it at a playground playset. Before I say goodbye, I'd like to th say thank you to my family uh, for supporting this work. I hope to see you all at the school board meeting on June 21st. Thank you so much for your time. Just keeps getting better. Let's keep going. <clears throat> I can do this. <laughs> Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Dr. Robin D'Angelo. She's next. <clears throat> Dr. Robin D'Angelo writes on white racial identity and white supremacy. Her work on white fragility has influenced the national dialogue on race. Let us welcome Dr. Robin D'Angelo. All right, can you hear me? All right, I'm ready. So thank you to Darlene Flynn and Deborah Terry Hayes across many years and many struggles. Uh, Mills, Bonio Silva, uh, Audre Lorde, and Stacy Lee have also been very foundational for me. Uh, I stand on the ancestral territories of indigenous peoples, and in a continual loop of colonialist relations, I have benefited from the land and work of peoples of color. Racism is a white problem, 
yet white people are deeply invested in racism. I am deeply invested in racism. These investments are tenacious and wily and require vigilance, humility, and courage to resist. How did I come to be invested? Well, even before I opened my eyes, the forces of white supremacy were shaping my life. What nutrition, transportation, and environmental safety my mother carried me in, how my mother was treated in the hospital, who owned that hospital, and who came in that night and mopped the floors. I grew up in the shame of poverty and the silencing of sexism, but I always knew that I was white. I still held the key signifier of ideal beauty and humanity. Whiteness has enabled me to navigate classism and sexism, and I am very clear that white women don't land any more lightly on people of color. My internalized sexism and class inferiority don't make me less racist. In fact, they work powerfully to have me collude with racism through my silence. And my silence on racism enables me to get ahead as a woman and to realign with the dominant white culture my class background separated me from. I have been given the message that I am superior, the human norm, the ideal for humanity. This is not an isolated or singular message. It is relentless, and I and any other white person could not and did not miss that message, regardless of our other intersecting positions. It is a brilliant strategy of racism to teach us that racism can only consist of intentional acts of conscious hatred and meanness, and because we are not mean and unaware of hatred, we believe we are free of racism, untouched by this relentless conditioning, and yes, those were five different girls. And people of color may rightly ask, how is that possible? How could you not know? Why do you lie? Well, we've been taught to be oblivious, but to shut our eyes to what we know. But it is a willful, aggressive refusal to know. We don't want to know or to see. And we work hard at this refusal because to see would fundamentally challenge our identities as good people. It would require us to give up our narratives of racial innocence, of not knowing what we're supposed to do. We claim racial innocence to hide our apathy about racism and our investment in white supremacy. But we cannot admit to this, as we could not align our identities as good people with this knowing. And this makes us very, very irrational racially. Our irrationality functions powerfully as a form of everyday white racial control. I might not be the 1%, but I can make it so miserable for you to talk to me about my racism that you just don't. White fragility is not weak. It is a form of bullying to keep people of color in their place. My current degree of consciousness came when I took a job as a diversity trainer and embarked on a parallel process. One, sustained challenges to my worldview from a significant number of people of color, and I could be a full educated adult and never have had that experience. And two, trying to talk to white people every single day about racism, and the predictable and superficial narratives will surface.
Wouldn't you love to do something 60 years ago and be certified as racism-free for the rest of your life? Okay, um, that would be marching in the 60s. Focus underneath and you can see the pillars of white supremacy that prop these narratives up and how they function to protect whiteness, take race off the table, and render white people exempt from further involvement. Yet working to edu educate other white people necessarily centers whiteness. As my voice is heard more openly, yet again it's all about us. My work with other white people is always at the expense of centering myself and decentering peoples of color. So how have I reconciled this dilemma in my work? Well, I can't say I've reconciled it, uh, but I think about it as whiteness is centered in part by remaining unnamed, and I hope to decenter whiteness by laying it bare, exposing, admitting, making visible. No, whites do not represent humanity. We are having a very different experience from people of color. And this leads me to three guiding principles. One, break white solidarity, and yet the pull is so powerful that I will actually privilege my white comfort over black lives. So I remind myself that, that niceness does not interrupt racism. Niceness is not courageous. Two, accountability. The number one question I ask myself here is, how do I know? How do I know how well I am doing? How clearly I am thinking? Who I am in relationship with? What do we talk about? Am I ever called in? If not, why not? That's on me. And three, repair. I may do less harm now, but I still do harm. And it's on me to repair with humility, humility, humility. It is not my place to anoint myself an ally. Allyship is a continual process that I must demonstrate in each moment and is ultimately determined by peoples of color. I don't actually know how to interrupt uh, whiteness or how not to perpetrate racism. It is a lifelong struggle. So the essential question that I must keep asking is how am I doing right now and how do I know? Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you, Robin. We are almost at the close of tonight, and I want to do some quick reminders. When you came in, you probably received a survey about tonight. If you can hold on to it, because we'll collect them when you leave. Also, for those at the top, we'll continue to try and get the volume to be loud enough. And I also wanted to let you know, if you miss things, we will be sharing the podcast, and this will be available on Seattle Channel. So thank you for your patience. All right, our last presenter for Pachakata, but not our last speaker for tonight, is Shelby Handler. Shelby is a white, queer, Jewish writer and witch. I did say witch, I love it. They organized with Jewish Voices for Peace, coalition of anti-racist whites, and work for Youth Speak Seattle. Love it. Please give a warm round of applause for Shelby.
I want to introduce myself by naming where I'm from. I was raised on Arapahoe Territory in Denver, Colorado. This is my maternal grandmother, Rita, my great-grandmother, Frances, bitter and fierce working-class Catholic single mothers, and my paternal grandfather, Norman, a smooth-talking Ashkenazi Jewish womanizer and businessman. I am from truth seekers, mafia leg breakers, hypocrites, alcoholics, abusers, and the women they left behind. I'm a daughter of settlers, of landlords, of gentrifiers and gentrified, of immigrants who now resent immigrants, of the chaste and the chasers. I name my lineage to feel my body and the bodies that brought it here to reckon with how I am interwoven in ongoing histories of colonialism, slavery, and capitalism, to interrupt one tiny slice of the monolith of whiteness, a violent institution invented as a scalpel against solidarity. Another part of my lineage is the people and organizations I'm intertwined with. More people of color and white folks than I can name here have challenged me with love and truth, but I wish to honor these POC-led orgs that I'm accountable to, Buy-In Pacific Northwest, the POC Caucus at Arts Corps, You Speak Seattle, Ringside Revolutionary Poets, and I also want to name, and I put their names on a slide so you can find these artists of color later because I am grateful to have journeyed with them, and I offer their name with permission and sacredness. Christina Wen, Troy Osaki, Nikita Oliver, you may recognize that name, and that will become very important. Erica Hatanaka, Nick Masankai, Dante DeQueen Johnson, find them. And part of honoring my lineage is also meant reconnecting to Jewish practices. It's really heavy to hold complicity, especially when I fuck up, and ritual centers me in the interconnectedness of all beings, which is a major antidote to going down the shame spiral of doing it all wrong. And in Judaism, one belief is that the unity of God and the universe was shattered at the moment of creation. In this explosion, holy sparks fell off in all directions, falling into things and beings. Basically, these holy sparks are in everything, all people, all actions, even really fucked up shit. And so there's this Kabbalistic notion of tikkun olam, or repair of the world, based on the idea that these sparks yearn to return to one another. And this is a sacred task, to return the world to wholeness. And as white folks, what does wholeness mean? I'm a part of a group of white artists who are trying to push on that question. We collaborated on a participatory ritual and storytelling event called Toward Love in Public, as Diana mentioned earlier. And our aim was to create a sacred space for white people to examine whiteness. This pilot felt vulnerable and authentic. It had powerful impacts, and the proceeds went to migrant justice organizers at the Northwest Detention Center Resistance. Look them up. And yet, we were left with a lot of questions and a lot of tensions. And so, in an ask for accountability, we invited POC artists, trusted friends, and collaborators to give us feedback. The conversation that occurred was a generative, loving, direct, and messy call out and call forward. It was triggering for POC artists to be asked once again to do heavy lifting on whiteness with a project that risked, in the words of DeVita, and Diana already said this quote, but we gotta say it again, risking gentrifying identity politics. 
And while this work for white people is necessarily necessary, it was clear that our attempt had not gone deep enough to be disruptive, particularly in a white and often complacent and liberal Seattle crowd. We were unprepared to dig into the rich questions offered to us on accountability, dignity, and love. We weren't grounded enough in our own humanity to come fully to the conversation and to honor the humanity of our comrades. Our ask for feedback felt extractive and painful, not transformative. I panicked. My body went numb and I could barely speak. I doubted all the supposed work I was doing. What good was any of it? My, pay, my mind was a page out of the Tema Kuhn white supremacy culture article. Perfectionism, defensiveness, only one right way, right to comfort, either or thinking, fear of conflict. But in this brokenness sprang brilliance and connection. Multiple truths were present in that room, pain and potential. It cracked open truthful directives from people of color on the work that white folks need to do. And I don't mean this as like a neat, happy ending with absolution. It was a failure and an opening, both, not either or. And during this conversation, Artist and healer and youth worker Christina Orbe urged us to examine how whiteness manifests as control and rigidity, the choking back of feeling and interconnection. The numbness I felt in my body was that. And when I avoid feeling the harm inflicted upon people of color, I am protecting the domination I've been socialized into. Later on, another white artist was acknowledging that for, fo for white folks, privilege allows us to navigate a racist world with relative safety and that it's not an emergency for our bodies. Christina interrupted whiteness in that moment and said, no, it is an emergency. The bodies and souls of white folks are damaged by carrying out white supremacy. She demanded us to witness the urgency of that and not be lulled into numbness. Our humanity is on the line, too, while we hold systemic power. This harm is not the same as oppression, but the cost to our spirits is huge. Christina called us to a radical healing, a kind of death. This death allows more space for the disconnected parts of the soul to return to our body, she said. Could our healing really be insurrectionary and not pacifying? White folks, we must die in order to become something else. Our freedom is intertwined with the liberation of black, brown, and indigenous people everywhere, so we cannot stay numb, and we must face an unrecognizable future as accomplices. We're all about being post-race, so what will we be once we've helped obliterate whiteness? What will we fill that void with? I try to imagine it. There is a huge, glowing fire. We are strong from finding our stake in liberation, putting our bodies on the line in protest, giving up power and resources, calling other white people in imperfectly and with love, fucking up and showing up and showing up again. Imagine it with me. We toss the last match into the pit where part of us burns. Was it even really a part of us? Maybe. But what do our hands look like now, now that we have seen them for the first time? I look up and watch the holy sparks on fire and flying, beginning to return.
Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Cool. I love you, Shelby. Thank you so much, Davida, for letting me come and speak tonight. I'm going to do a poem for you guys real quick. Is that cool? Yeah. Awesome. So we had some really difficult conversation tonight, and I really want to thank everybody for being in this room and, like, being honest and vulnerable um, and holding all those complicated feelings. And we're in a world that everything's really scary and messed up right now. So this poem is about um, how, let's be honest, horrible this world is currently um, and imagining a better world. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for a good segue to that, Shelby. Um. You remember Chicken Little? You remember him? Yeah? You remember when he warned his whole town the sky was falling? and they did not believe him. Do you remember a few months ago when we warned everyone this white man would do us in and they did not believe us, the sky is falling? Can't you hear it? It sounds like Twitter feeds and police sirens, the sky is falling. Can't you hear it? It sounds like handcuffs clinking and white men laughing, can't you hear it? Our ancestors screaming, our children asking all the questions we cannot answer, the sky is falling, the country is falling which is to say this country has always been falling. We have seen the breaking before. We have seen blood splattered church walls and gun chambers, but we know how to build beauty out of destruction, how to make home out of hollow when the sky is falling. But we have seen this before. Let the sky fall. Let us see all the stars. We will not waver. This howling wind will not be stronger than our hope. The world is ending. The sky is falling. Thank God. I am tired of this earth. I am ready to build a new one. The sky is falling. The world is ending, but it will begin again. We will build a new world from the ash, but let us not forget the fire. We will build mosaics out of the shards, but let us not forget the breaking. This cycle shall not continue. The world has ended so many times. We know of breaking, of falling, of bending. Yes, we have heard of the end, but what is the end of something if not the beginning? Let the sky fall. Let it give birth to something new, something bright and beautiful. Let every bullet be sucked into space. Let the sky fall. Let the new one be beautiful. Praise all that is new and holy. Praise all that lifts us. Let the new world hold us better than all the ones before. Let the sky fall. Let us prepare for the new beginning. Amen. Do you see why we picked Carlin to, to close out our night? Um, in all honesty, as a programmer here at the library, I was excited when Anna came with the call to do a pachacacha that asked white people to address white supremacy. But I was also worried that with the demography of our city that the appetite for white people to hear white people talk about racism would be greater than the appetite of listening to people of color. So I want to thank Carlin Newhouse, our final, one of the finalists for the Youth Poet Laureate and just an incredible voice and visionary for letting us close tonight 
with inspiration and hope and with our hearts pointed in the right direction. I also hope that you will come back to the Seattle Public Library and also to arts and cultural groups and other community organizations that are led by people of color, not just to talk about racial justice, but to celebrate joy and our brilliance. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This Pachacacha Night Seattle event, Interrupting Whiteness, took place at the Seattle Public Library on June 1st. Tune in again soon.